Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards once commented about their longtime keyboard player, Chuck Lavelle. Without the continuity that Chuck brings to us, the Stones would not be the Stones. Lavelle describes his role with the band as a sort of musical navigator who keeps track of arrangements and keeps things balanced in addition to spicing up the music with his keyboards. And as you would imagine, there's more to Chuck's artistry than his work with the Rolling Stones, who, by the way, are in the middle of their No Filter tour right now. I managed to catch up with Chuck Lavelle in between gigs to talk about the Stones, Eric Clapton's unplugged album, his work as a writer, and his definition of success as an artist. We travel now to Chicago to have a chat with Chuck Lavelle. So Chuck, your, your music history is so rich, but I really wanted to start with your contributions to the Eric Clapton Unplugged album in 1992, which for me was a groundbreaking record. You know, as a musician, how did you approach that work compared to some more of the electrified gigs that you did with Almond Brothers and Rolling Stones? Well, I appreciate that uh, right off the bat. I guess a little backstory might help, and that is that I came in the band as sort of second keyboardist to uh, the great uh, Greg Fillingaines, and uh, Greg and I became very fast friends, and I just we're still great buddies. And you know, we had worked with Eric, and what happened was um, we finished a tour. Of the tragic thing that happened to Eric's son occurred. And while he was slated to take some time off, he decided it would be best to continue to work, which I, I know was a good decision. And uh, the next thing we did was the tour with George Harrison. Uh, we did that in Japan. It went great. And at the end of it, Greg went to Eric and he said, uh, look, man, you know, there's been a great run. I love you, but I really don't want to travel this much anymore. I want to uh, to go back to L.A. and produce records, play on records. And so Eric came to me and he said, Chuck, Greg's going to resign. And what do you think? Do you think we need another keyboard player or would you like to have it on your own? The next thing we're going to do is the unplugged record and performance. And, you know, I thought about it a minute and I said, you know, uh, I'd like to have it all to myself if it's all the same to you. So he agreed. And I was kind of like a coiled up spring. You know, I had been a uh, second keyboardist for a good while. And so this was an opportunity for me to step out a little bit and, and uh, you know, have more solo time and, and just be able to contribute uh, in a stronger and better way. And that's what happened. So, you know, it was it was just, as I said, like a cold up spring ready to release. And that's what happened on the unplugged uh, performance. It, it really, I mean, the whole thing just came off beautifully. Could you feel that something special was happening while you guys were working on this? Absolutely. Uh, we rehearsed, oh, maybe two, I can't remember quite, maybe three days. So it wasn't a, a real long rehearsal. And of course, being an all acoustic setting, uh, things were quite different and, and we needed some time to explore and see what would or may not work. And uh, once we culled some things out and then uh, started refining the set, uh, I could feel it. I, I just felt, wow, this is a great opportunity. Uh, let's mention the band. I mean, Steve Ferroni on drums, Ray Cooper on percussion, Tessa Niles and Katie Kassoon, Andy Fairweather Lowe. Uh, you know, it, it was just... Uh, and Nathan East on bass. I mean, just an, an outstanding group of folks. And, and most of those folks had worked with Eric for quite some time. 
Uh, I was the newbie for sure. Brought a little something different, something fresh uh, to the group. But all I know is that we were all having a blast, and we were all very grateful that it went as well as, as it did. Do you remember what you were playing, the instruments that you were using? Well, there was an acoustic piano, right. of course, and then uh, there was a couple of songs that needed organ, and we didn't want to use an electric uh, B3 Hammond or something else, so we had a pump organ brought in. Oh, my in. gosh. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I was pedaling that thing like a bicycle, baby. I was... <laughs> Uh, but uh, but it worked. It really did. It had a wonderful harmonium sound to it and uh, added a lot to a few of the songs that we So you guys really did keep to the unplugged uh, mantra on this. You didn't cheat, did you? Not at all. No, I know that uh, some artists kind of did cheat a little bit, but uh, we felt that we were going to play by the rules. And besides that, it was just an interesting challenge for all of us. And, um, and it really did work out wonderfully. So... Uh, as a musician, as an artist, uh, working, I mean, you've worked with such a wide variety of talent. Let's compare, let's say you have a tour with the Rolling Stones, right? We're actually on tour as we speak. So uh, we, we have uh, five shows down and 12 to go. Five? How's it going? Oh, it's going great, man. Listen, uh, after having to postpone, as most of your listeners know, due to uh, Mick having a health issue and uh, a heart valve replacement, we weren't sure we could put the tour back together, to be honest with you, because it's a stadium tour, and we were bumping up against the NFL season. But luckily, we were able to squeeze everything in, and just the feeling of, wow, we, we are going to do this, you know, has given us all a lot of, uh, I think, extra energy. And uh, the five shows that we've done, you know, all sold out stadiums and just great to get in front of the people and great to get the train back on the track. Yeah. Now, you've been playing with these guys for quite a while. How how has that experience evolved over the years in terms of the musicianship, the craftsmanship, the, you know, the performances? How do you approach the show now maybe compared to, oh, let's say 10 years ago? Well, let's go back further than 10 years. When I first came in in 1982 uh, for a European tour, by the way, that was 37 years oh my ago. Gosh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was the same set every night. It was just the same songs in the same order and nothing changed. And then as we know, and I won't go through all the history, but uh, several years went by, seven years to be exact, before the band toured again in 1989 for Steel Wheels. And uh, at that juncture, you know, I said to the guys, and I think they all felt the same way, too. I said, look, the body of work is so deep and so amazing, and, and let's don't go out and do what we did before and just do the same set every night. Let's explore that catalog, and let's find some things that we can change in and out when we want to and play around with it. And, yes, there's going to be some iconic songs that you're always going to have in the set, but we can find, you know, places to put in some unusual uh, tunes, uh, some deep tracks, and, and uh, you know, let's, let's just widen the spectrum here. So at that juncture, we had um, quite a, a long rehearsal period, and I began to take a lot of notes. You know, physically, I just write in a, in a book. I'd say, all right, what did we rehearse today, and did we change the arrangement from the record for any reason? Uh, was there horns on it? Was there background vocals? What, you know, what role did they play? And I began to catalog all this stuff. That went through uh, every rehearsal and every tour 
in even every recording since then. And so uh, through all those years, I've amassed these two sort of encyclopedic books of notes uh, with chord charts and, and handwritten notes and catalog all this stuff. And so through that process, I think I became the go-to guy for remembering you know, how we approach any particular song or uh, the arrangement for any particular song. And that has sort of evolved into them giving the me the moniker of musical director. <laughs> and it's not only that, but it's also during the course of a given concert. You know, listen, Mick's got a lot of stuff to, to do up there. He's trying to work the crowd and, you know, it's a big stage and sometimes you, you get a little bit lost. And so he can look over and I can give certain signals of, to put him at ease. And, and I, I do a lot of that for Charlie as well. So uh, I enjoy that role. Let's face it, you know, it's not the kind of keyboard role where I get to step out and do all kind of solos. I get a couple of spots every night and, and I love it. But uh, what I do love about the role is uh, having that responsibility. So uh, it, it, it works out great. It does. And, you know, this is one of the things being an artist is, is so different in so many ways in that uh, creativity happens, yes, on the keyboards, but it also happens in the way that you approach your job and do the overall performance. And you actually identified a need, very important need, and then have stepped into that role. And I think that's part of being an artist also. Well, I appreciate that comment. I really do enjoy my role helping with these arrangements and doing what I can. And by the way, I do the set lists every night. And as I said earlier, there's always going to be some songs that you're going to play every night. But, uh, you know, it's fun for me to have the role of suggesting to the guys, hey, let's do, uh, you know, let's do Have Mercy or let's do something that we haven't done in ages. We did Have Mercy I think it might have been up in uh, the Toronto area on a show, and it was the first time the band had played that song. You know, it's a Don Covey mm -hmm. song that they recorded back in the early 60s, and uh, it had not been performed on stage since 1969. So, you know, it's fun to bring those kind of things into really play. It really helps keep it fresh, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It really does. And, and it gives us a challenge. You know, we need to be challenged and and not uh, get lazy about things. And uh, I think that's something that this band is very aware of. Uh, I think all of us enjoy, hey man, okay, let's take a little risk. Let's do something we haven't done in quite some time. And uh, and the fans love it, especially the hardcores. You know? Yeah, especially when you pull something out that they haven't heard for a while and, and you surprise and delight. Yeah, I can see that, I really can. Hey, so I wanna switch gears because Every artist that I've talked to has, you know, more than one expression of, of their ability. And you're also a writer. I want to kind of move into that for a moment. The first book that I did was called uh, Forever Green, The History and Hope of the American Forest. Uh, being a tree farmer myself, my wife, Rose Lane, and I uh, live on about 4,000 acres of uh, forest farm in central Georgia. It's, it's a long story, I guess, but her family has been connected to the land as good stewards for generations. And so she inherited about a thousand acres from her grandmother back in 81. And we realized, okay, this is a really important thing. We need to do the right thing by the land. Uh, certainly don't want to sell it. We want to, uh, you know, be good stewards to carry on this tradition of stewardship. And so uh, while the land that she inherited was basically a diverse 
diversified farm. So you had some cattle, you had some row crops, and, and there was also some timber on the place. Well, the cattle and the row crops and those sort of things were going to be way too much day to day for me. So uh, we eventually decided, well, let's let's look at long-term sustainable forestry. And, you know, uh, that's a good thing to do for the land. That's a good thing to do for people and, and you know, wood products. Uh, hey, the first connection was, where does that marvelous thing that has given me so much joy and a great career come from? Uh, you know, most musical instruments come from the resource of wood. So there was a personal connection there. And I began a study, a journey, if you will. Uh, went to the library, checked out books on forestry and land use and wildlife, and um, eventually enrolled in a correspondence course. Uh, this was uh, when I was touring with the fabulous Thunderbirds in the 80s, early 80s. And uh, after finishing that course, we began to actively manage our forest land, and that led to some um, advocacy work uh, and eventually to writing that first book. Did you consider yourself a, a writer before you wrote that book, or did your passion for conservation really sort of drive you to that? It was definitely the latter. You know, I had never envisioned myself as being a writer, but it was because I had this concern, this deep passion uh, for forestry, and really to get people to understand the importance of sustainable forestry because there's so much misconception, you know, when people see a harvest, sometimes they get really upset, you know, and let's face it, uh, sometimes those can be not terribly attractive things mm -hmm. to see. And I understand that. But what people need to understand is, look, this is a natural, organic, and most importantly, a renewable product. And so, you know, when you think about all the uses that we have for wood, okay, uh, it, it gives us materials for books, magazines, and newspapers. It gives us materials to build our homes and schools and churches and offices. And uh, it gives us, uh, you know, places for wildlife uh, to have a home, all manner of wildlife. It cleans, they clean our air, they clean our water. And so there's so much more uh, to think about than than just wood products. And then, you know, we mentioned musical instruments. Uh, the the most important thing is renewability. You know, when, when you harvest that tract of land, uh, as long as you put it back and plant it back and it's going to grow again, then you can perform this, this in a sustainable manner. And so that was the impetus for writing this book, to help people understand that. And, uh, you know, also to, to be clear about the history of America's forest, because, yes, there was a period of time when we raped and pillaged our forest, uh, you know, when the timber barons of the late 1800s and, uh, and, and land was being cleared and not replanted. And so it, it took a turnaround with uh, figures like Gifford Pinchot and John Muir and, of course, uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, to, to jump in and say, wait a minute, you know, we have to be a lot more careful about how we're treating our lands and our forests. And of course, uh, eventually the uh, beginning of the national forest system, the national park system and so forth. So these days, um, I'm quite proud of America, uh, the way that we manage our forest lands. And uh, I think people are having uh, a better understanding. So do you think we're doing a pretty good job now uh, managing uh, this important resource? I absolutely do. Are there still some, you know, bad actors out there? Well, 
A very few, yes. But overall, companies like Weyerhaeuser, companies like uh, International Paper, uh, there's a great company called Green Diamond out in the uh, Pacific Northwest, and all of these companies and the individual tree farmers like myself and Rose Lane that love our land, we're going to treat our land you know, as best as possible. The mantra that we have as landowners is that we want to leave our land in better shape than we found it for our children, for our grandchildren, and for future generations. And I think that's the same feeling that most uh, uh, timber companies have these days. Let's face it, they don't want to put themselves out of business, do they? You know, they want to make sure that they're practicing sustainability so that uh, their businesses can go forward. And and it goes not only for the treatment of the forest itself, but for everything within the forest, for the ecosystems, for the wildlife, and, uh, you know, everything connected to Absolutely. it. Absolutely. So I just have two more questions for you, uh, both pertaining to be an artist. And the first one is, as an artist, how do you view success? You have had quite a career, but w- what are the aspects of you being a musician and a writer that to you feel successful? Well, you know, I think in both cases, uh, it's an opportunity uh, as a writer, as a, as a musician, and as a uh, tree farmer to leave a legacy, to leave the world a little bit better than you found it, uh, to put smiles on people's faces with the music and, you know, not just the smiles, but to create emotions to people. And, you know, in terms of the writing and the books, uh, an opportunity to get people to better understand uh, the practice of forestry, the practice of land management, uh, the importance of uh, wildlife management and so forth. So it's you know, success to me is if you do things in the right way and you're able to leave a legacy that you're proud of. That's a beautiful answer. What advice do you have for musicians getting started in the business? Uh, a lot has changed, but uh, a lot is the same. And what do you wish you would have known when you were starting out that you know now? You're right in saying that uh, things are so much different now with the advent of downloading and streaming, the revenue uh, streams have really dried up and changed drastically. And so it's more difficult to make a living out of recorded music now and music that's uh, played over the radio or streamed or whatever it might be. Uh, But look, the answer is this. You got to have a passion for it. You got to want it and you got to want it deep. You got to want it in your soul and in your DNA and in your bones and, you know, damn everything else. I mean, uh, it's great if you can make some money, do the concerts and create income and, and uh, you know, make a, a decent living or a good living. But it's really all about the satisfaction that you get as an artist to be able to create music, uh, to perform music and, and to move people uh, with the talent that you've given. Chuck, thank you so much for your time. And uh, thank you for your efforts uh, making this interview happen. I really appreciate it. Glad to do it, Derek. Have a great rest of your day, okay? Okay, thanks, pal. A big thanks to Chuck for joining us this week. You can learn more about him by visiting www.chucklevel.com. That's C-H-U-C-K-L-E-A-V-E-L-L.com. And hats off to Kelly Richards, our talent producer, for making the connection. I'll be back next time with another artist and the thoughts behind their creations. Until then, this is Derek Story, the nimble photographer, wishing you great success in all your endeavors.
This podcast is made possible by select members of Patreon. You can learn more and pledge your support for the digital story and the nimble photographer by visiting www.patreon.com/slash/the-digital-story.